My name is John Huggins. I'm the chaplain at Berry College, and I'm grateful to be here uh, with you like this this morning. I'm grateful to Brian for asking me to fill in for him. Um, today is my sister's birthday. Gretchen sitting over here, I think, somewhere. Where is she? Oh, she's over here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so y'all be sure to tell Gretchen happy birthday today. And so I'm dedicating this sermon to her. <clears throat> Not preaching on hell or anything weird like that. <clears throat> it's also Philip Melanchthon's birthday for the church history buffs. He was Martin Luther's younger, close associate, uh, architect of the uh, Augsburg Confession of Faith. <clears throat> but I, I don't dedicate the sermon to him. He's great, but he's not my sister. <clears throat> uh, Brian Bojo, who was just up here uh, uh, leading us in worship, he and I... Uh, went to elementary school together. We actually played t-ball uh, on the same team. And uh, we're representing Garden Lakes this morning. <clears throat> so uh, if you grow up in Garden Lakes and you go to college and study Greek, you grow up and you start wearing corduroy jackets like the two of us <clears throat> and leading church services. Well, this morning I want to talk a little bit about ecclesiology, <clears throat> that is uh, the church. Here we are all gathered at church this morning, and um, it might be important for us to ask from time to time, hey, what are we doing? Uh, why are we here? Uh, what's this thing for? Uh, what's church really all about? And I think it's an important question because when people don't give good, solid attention to that kind of question, we tend to just sort of make the church what we want it to be. Um, and maybe we learn from the practices of other churches, and we think, hey, I think we should be the kind of community that does this or that or the other. And those things might be well and good, but are they really conforming to the vision that God has for his church? <clears throat> and we begin to see just a little bit of the vision God has communicated through Jesus, his son, in the Gospel of Matthew <clears throat> chapter 16. And I'm going to go to that passage in just a moment, but would you take a moment and pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. <clears throat> o Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Christ's name, amen. In Matthew chapter 16, which is more or less at the middle of the gospel of Matthew, there's the account of Jesus taking his disciples away to a city called Caesarea Philippi and beginning to ask them the question, uh, who do people say that I am? And uh, they give some responses. This is, what some people, this is who some people think you are. One of the prophets from old or something like that. Or perhaps John the Baptist. And then he asked them the all-important question, who do you say that I am? And uh, in Matthew, as well as in Mark's gospel, where this, where this passage features centrally, it's like everything beforehand, especially in Mark's gospel, has been leading to this moment. Leading you to give the same answer that the apostles would give at this moment. So you see the stories happening in the gospel so far. So when asked that question, who do you say that I am? You would give the same answer as Peter, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then after that, he begins to show them what that means for him to be the Christ, that he's going to lay down his life uh, for them. Uh, Matthew's account uh, goes a little bit further, gives us a little bit more information. And we have one of the only... Uh, one of the only times in the gospel accounts where Jesus uses the word church, and we're talking about church this morning, so let's see what Jesus says about church. He only uses this word twice, I believe, and it's only in Matthew's gospel, which uh, 
strengthens the case that Matthew's gospel was likely conceived as sort of a discipleship manual for the early church so that they would get a good sense of Jesus' teachings and learn what the gospel is all about and then know how to live it out. So I want to read this short passage and then launch into this topic of ecclesiology um, uh, afterwards. So Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. Now, sometimes when this passage is read, people are preoccupied with what did Jesus mean when he says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and there's a couple of different interpretations of that passage throughout history that have been uh, important for some of our church distinctives. For instance, it's common in the Roman Catholic tradition to view this as a statement about Peter himself, that upon Peter's uh, life and personal testimony... Um, his church would be built. Others, a more Protestant view has been that upon Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon this confession the church would be built. And others have argued that something about the setting that Jesus was, where they were, Jesus was communicating about that in Caesarea Philippi at the mouth of the Jordan River and uh, at where, there, where some of the pagan deities were worshipped. That Jesus was saying, upon this rock, I will build my church. Uh, upon this this uh, falsehood, for instance, perhaps. Well, I don't want to focus on that part. I want to talk about the part where he says, on this rock I'll build my church. What kind of church is Jesus building? He says he's going to build a church, and it's a church against which the gates of hell cannot prevail. So how do we know that we're embodying the church that Jesus wants to build against which the gates of hell cannot prevail? That's the key question. And what does it mean that the gates of hell can't prevail against it? I think that sometimes maybe we don't understand the image, and we assume that the idea being communicated is that the church will be taking a stand, but it will be being uh, attacked from the outside, but the church will be able to withstand those attacks and, you know, stay strong. And while I think that is true, that's actually not what the image is communicating. Uh, Gates are a defensive mechanism, so it's actually the church that's moving and advancing in the world, and hell has set up its gates against the church's movement or progression, and he's saying those gates won't be able to withstand or stand up against the church's advancement and movement into the world. So it's actually the church that's being the active force, not just the passive resistor. So Jesus is building a church that's advancing against all the powers of hell. That is, all powers of corruption or deception, sin and death. And so are we that church? Uh, What is the church? Is it an institution? An organization? Is it uh, religious buildings? The people that gather in them? How should we understand it? Uh, you can do an internet search for um, uh, this moment, but there was, uh, um, back when George Bush was still president of the United States, uh, he invited, or I guess someone invited, uh, Bono from U2 to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast. 
National Day of Prayer, Prayer Breakfast. And uh, it's really a great talk. It's worth Googling or YouTube searching and watching this. He does a great job with it. Uh, But Bono, one of the things he says in that prayer breakfast talk was that, you know, for a while he had stepped away from the church. Bono is a genuine Christian, but he had stepped away from the church. Uh, He was disillusioned with it. And one of the reasons he was disillusioned with it was because um, uh, when they were younger, the band, some of the band members were involved with like a charismatic house church movement, but they were told at some point they needed to give up playing rock and roll music. Well, they thought that God wanted them to play rock and roll music, so they just left the house church environment and, and kept doing their thing, which, you know, they're pretty good at, in case you don't know. But um, they uh, are good at that. And he said he never left Jesus. He didn't leave Jesus or the scriptures. He continued to engage with them throughout his life. But around the year 2000, he was drawn back to the church in part by seeing the, the leading witness the church was taking in fighting issues of injustice in his environment, and particularly stuff around the, the millennium year, the, the new year. And they were proclaiming this uh, uh, kind of year of the Lord's favor, where the, the gov- encouraging their governments to do big things to overcome injustice in the world, like forgiving third world debt and things like that. And because they took such a, a lead in that role, it put a fresh face on the church for him. And he saw the church as a serving, witnessing, bearing witness to the kingdom people who wanted to live for the good of the world. And so he lost his, uh, his, his sort of uh, uh, prejudice against the church in those moments. It was a good moment. Bono witnessed a serving, witnessing church. At the beginning of the service today, we sang the, the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. That's written by Robert Robinson. Uh, Robert Robinson who lived in around the uh, 18th century, writes this, um, <clears throat> this beautiful hymn that we continue to sing today. But at some point in his life, after he had written that hymn, there's a story about him that he had begun to fall away from the Lord, to turn away from the church and kind of fall back into uh, an immoral lifestyle. <clears throat> at one point, while he had, was in his far country moment, if you will, he got into a stagecoach one day, and there was a woman in the stagecoach who was humming this hymn. <clears throat> she turned to him and she says, oh, sir, have you ever heard that hymn? <clears throat> she just loved it. And he says something to the effect of, yes, ma'am, I am the poor, unhappy fellow who wrote that hymn. <clears throat> and God used that moment, actually, in his life, his own hymn. To bring him back to Christ. To bring him back into a close relationship with God. He experienced a worshiping Christian. And that experience of a worshiping Christian changed his life and restored him. Perhaps you've heard of the author John Bunyan. He's the author of The Pilgrim's Progress and other things. Which is the second most widely published book in publication history. Next to the Bible. Uh, But John Bunyan was not always uh, a Christian, and he tells the story of his conversion in a book called uh, Grace Abounding, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he was uh, commenting on. And he talks about one time, I think he was just like cleaning, maybe he had a job where he was cleaning some room, and he he overhears two Christians talking. He was dropping some eaves on them as they were talking about their faith, and uh, they were just talking about how 
he listens to their conversation. It's almost like a, a, a they're talking about a world he doesn't understand. They seem to be so full of joy and wonder. And they weren't trying to talk about their faith in order to win him to Christ. He's just overhearing them. And he's drawn to their joy. He's drawn to the world and the life they're describing. And as they are mutually encouraging one another, without knowing it, they're influencing this guy who's going to write this book who's, that's going to influence Christians uh, for centuries. John Bunyan experienced a nurturing, edifying community. I'm going to bring those three things together here in just a moment. But first, let's uh, get a working definition for the church. Now, this is just my own working definition. It's not authoritative or anything, so you don't have to like it. But it's what I'm going to use for the sermon, okay? So um, I would say the de- a, a working definition of the church is a people, bam. Bam, there it is, there it is. A people redeemed and ruled by God through Jesus Christ in covenant relationship with God who are nourished and nourished by and filled with the Holy Spirit who worship God in spirit and truth who shepherd and encourage one another and who bear witness to the grace of God by word and action in the world. You can keep that up for just a moment. I think that each line is intentional for me. It it expresses some really important aspect of what I think the church is that no really good definition can afford to do without. Although I'm sure there are simpler ways to uh, define the church. You can probably do it in like one sentence instead of six. But why do something simple when you can do it in a complex way? Now, the Bible doesn't usually give us definitions like we find in a dictionary. More often, there we find images and metaphors for the church that are intended to still communicate the meaning of what the church is, but just not in a dictionary style. So some of the images and metaphors that we see uh, in the Bible for the church include uh, family images, where Christians refer to one another as brother and sister. We have the bride image where the church is said to be the bride of Jesus. Uh, We have a body image, where we find uh, mutual interdependence between Christians needing one another. And then the temple image. These are sort of your four primary kinds of images. And all of them do communicate things. So family um, communicates a kind of intimacy, a kind of closeness between the church members. That we understand ourselves not just as fellow members of an organization, but as very members of a family. <clears throat> to understand, the bride Im- image communicates God's special love for the church that's unlike his general sort of love for everything. There's a special kind of love that he has for the church and intimacy. The body, once again, communicating our interdependence um, as Christians. And then the temple image actually is more powerful and maybe more important than you might realize uh, in fact, N.T. Wright says that the, uh, the church is Paul's central worldview symbol. Uh, that is, the new Jew plus Gentile, people of God in the Messiah, is the thing that, around which everything else revolves for him. And for him to call the church the temple in the New Testament is really, really important because the temple was, in many ways, a central worldview symbol for the Jews before uh, Christ and, and during Christ's own life. And so now it's... So the New Testament is communicating what that was, the place where heaven and earth met, the place where people met God, where reconciliation happened, where people were uh, uh, freshly inspired with God's word. That is now happening 
in the church. And as God's Spirit used to be present here and no longer, it is now present here in the church. And all those things are supposed to happen here. You'd be the place where heaven and earth meet, where people are reconciled to God, where people find forgiveness, reconciliation, and fresh inspiration for living. Uh, So these are all very important images. But the main thing I want to focus on Uh, Today is what I would consider to be like the purpose and task of the church. And this brings together those three stories I told you earlier about Bono, Robert Robinson, and John Bunyan. I think the best way to think about the three, the purpose and task of the church is I just tend to think in threes. And I think they do a good job of sort of uh, covering everything. I like the words worship, nurture, and witness. Worship, nurture, and witness. My argument is that these are the primary purposes and tasks of the church. And by worship, I mean that we have, we have an, a, a kind of upward calling, a calling to be the people of God who are, in, who are worshiping God, who are offering God thanksgiving and praise on a continual basis. Um, we gathered this morning, and we call this a worship service. It's one of the key identifiers for God's people, for the church, the Second, nurture is kind of an inward calling. And by that I mean uh, the calling we have to be a community that grows in faith, hope, and love. One that encourages and edifies the members. However, the church doesn't only exist for ourselves or for us. The church exists for the world. We have an outward calling to bear witness to the gospel by word and action. Now, all three of these things are sort of interrelated, interconnected activities that define the church. I believe this is the church against which the gates of hell cannot prevail. And I want to look at each one more in depth now by looking at several scripture passages that communicate these ideas. So let's begin with worship. Worship comes from the old English word worship, as you may know, which has to do with acknowledging something's value, recognizing something's worth. And when, it's, when we're talking about God, it has to do with acknowledging or recognizing the ultimate worth and value of God as the creator and redeemer of all things. Historically, worship includes the notions of sacrifice and offering. But in the New Testament, as, and we see this in the Psalms as well, the kinds of sacrifices and offerings God desires are sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. The kind of offering God desires is that we offer our own lives as living sacrifices. Uh, we'll look at that passage in a moment. Uh, I want to first say there's both broad and, a broad and narrow sense to um, worship. The broad sense is kind of like what we're doing today. We've gathered for a service of worship. So we've come together as the church to gather in God's presence to offer Him thanks and praise and to offer ourselves. And then there's the more... Uh, Actually, that's the, that's the narrow sense. I said that was the broad sense. I was wrong. Uh, that's the narrow sense. The broad sense is what we do when the church is scattered. So the church gathers in, to, for worship and the church scatters throughout the week. I don't know if it gets covered and chunked and all that other stuff, but at least gathers and scatters. Um, and when we're scattered, we're called to worshipful service, where we live, work, go to school, and play. Now, that language comes from Scotty Smith. You know, One of the reasons... We, we have services of worship to equip us for worshipful service outside um, our church gatherings. So we have services of worship to gather for worshipful service the rest of the week. 
Let's look at a couple of passages that talk about worship. In John 4, 23, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, he says to her, the hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. I've preached a sermon on that before, and just in, um, I talk about that. I think that means um, from the heart and in light of the gospel. From the heart and spirit in light of the gospel and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So God is seeking a worshiping people. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the church against which the gates of hell can't prevail will be a worshiping people. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is a great one-line summary of what New Testament worship is about at its heart about offering oneself to God. And that's probably important for New Testament Christians to hear in light of both the Jewish system related to the temple, which uh, is not appropriate anymore, and people who were coming out of pagan lifestyles where there was all kinds of, uh, of temples and places for offering sacrifices and all that. And for Paul to be saying to Christians, no, you don't worship that way anymore. Instead, we offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. He gets at the heart and spirit of worship. Worship is not just something we do now. It is also something we do forever. In Revelation 22, a picture of the new creation, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, that is, the, in the new creation, and his servants will worship him. We must continually be a worshiping people who gather for services of worship and who scatter for worshipful service. Second point, nurture. <clears throat> uh, nurture is about being built up, nourished by Jesus. And Jesus does this through certain means. He does it through his word, scripture, and he does it through his people, the church. And so we have lots of scriptures encouraging us to do these kinds of things for one another that would lead to being nourished, uh, that would cause us to grow. We have an inward call from God as the church to grow in our own faith, hope, and love, and to do so in community as a people. You can't, do, you can't love one another all by yourself. Right? You can't encourage one another all by yourself. <clears throat> Unless you're looking in the mirror and just talking to yourself. And that's okay. There's a place for that. Uh, it shouldn't be everything. We do this not only by things like preaching and teaching, but we also do it by mutual counseling and care. By being merciful to one another. By sharing life together. Corporate prayer and the like. A couple of passages to look at. First Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Encourage, build one another up, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. In Hebrews 10.24, says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, because you can't do these things alone, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. 1 Peter 4, 8 tells us, 
Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, the church should be a place where there's so much love that a multitude of sins is covered in our relations with each other. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. It's something else you can't do alone is use your gifts to serve others. So this community must be one in which we are being built up and nourished in our faith by God's word, by God's people. The last point is uh, witness. Witness, uh, the Greek word for witness is martyr, actually. We see the beginning of this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And this is sort of the thesis verse for the whole book of Acts. When it says, Jesus says to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You'll be my martyrs. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, the church against which the gates of hell cannot prevail must be a church that bears witness to Jesus as Lord, who bears witness to his kingdom rule. And his truth. In Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, Jesus first of all makes a startling announcement by saying, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." Now that's the kind of sentence you can't just read over. You have to like stop and think about it for a second. It's like this is either true or it's not, right? So, if all authority in heaven and on earth has already been given to Jesus, not will one day be given to him, but has already now. This is the resurrected Jesus speaking. That means he's the most important person. There is. And therefore, Jesus can't be uh, uh, reduced to simply a good moral teacher or a nice religious person or anything like that. All authority. And then he says, as the authoritative person to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the church is a disciple-making people who teach God's, who teach Jesus' commands to one another. In Colossians 3.17, it says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Um, doing things in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? <clears throat> Think about that. Even mundane things. What would it look like? It says, whatever you do, in word or deed, to do it in the name of Jesus. I think it has to do with being conscious that you are connected to Jesus, that you are a representative of Jesus, that you are being remade in the image of Jesus. And to do whether everything we do, even mundane things like eating and drinking, we would do in the name of the Lord Jesus. This has to do with bearing witness to our Lord. In Matthew five thirteen and 14, I don't think I have these in the PowerPoint. That's where Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Later on, you're the salt of the earth. And in 5.16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others. This is bearing witness. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who who is in heaven. Uh, I think a question we might should ask ourselves when we read a passage like that is, um, does the watching world see this when they look at the church? Are they seeing our good works and giving glory to God? Like Bono, who's just sort of a detached Christian, and then all of a sudden seeing Christians bear witness in a powerful way. 
to bring justice and goodness to the world. <clears throat> Does the watching world see this? You know, if we only understand the gospel uh, as sort of a personal therapy, sort of a therapeutic token, we haven't really understood the gospel. If we only think of it as sort of being the thing that makes me you know, feel better, the gospel, nothing can make you feel better than the gospel. I want to at least say that. Uh, nothing brings more peace than the gospel of grace. But if we're not captivate, captivated by Jesus' own vision to see his kingdom come on earth as in heaven, then we still haven't really gotten the gospel. We've only gotten a little piece of it, a very small, truncated aspect of the gospel. So some people come to church even, gather and worship, only to have that little therapeutic token sort of rubbed, like carrying a little rabbit's foot in your pocket or something, and not to be re-inspired to go bear witness to the, Lord, the lordship of Jesus, to become an agent of God's kingdom. And if so, it's like we've only halfway gotten it. We're not really following Jesus yet. And Jesus is not just sitting around wishing people would have quiet times. He's actually out, he's doing something. He's bringing his kingdom to bear onto the world. He's causing the church as its representative to break down the gates of hell. And he's saying, this is the mission I'm on, people. You know, come and join me in this mission. Yes, it includes solitary time with us together in prayer. But it's so that we become people who bear fruit and can bear witness in the power of the Spirit. Not just people who are merely comforted, but comforted people changing the world. Our witness is carried out on earth only by the Spirit's power. This has nothing to do whatsoever with earning anything from God. It's all about living in light of the gospel's claims on the world. That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus' cross has defeated the powers of sin, death, and hell. And the Holy Spirit has come to empower the church to implement that victory everywhere as far as the curse is found. This is our vocation. By word and deed, we carry the message of grace and redemption and have the privilege of sharing it. We have biblical truth to shine as light into the world. I just want to say as sort of an aside... The shining of biblical truth, or another way to say this might be reflecting God's wisdom into the world, is an important aspect of bearing the image of God, of being an image bearer. Now, sometimes in church we get sort of a sentimental picture of what that might look like, where it's only about being sort of, you know, it's just kind of about being a nice person. And the world would love it if Christians were just nice idiots. You know, if we didn't try to bring God's wisdom to bear upon life in the world or in society, they'd be okay if we were just nice people who didn't think. Don't try to bring any of your like holy religious stuff into our world, but we are not reflecting the image of Jesus if we do not reflect his wisdom also, no matter how nice we are or even how kind we are, we must also reflect his truth. But it cannot be overstated that we must also reflect the love and grace of God to others too, showing people what God's forgiveness looks like, what reconciliation looks like. We should be working in our bearing witness to overcome injustices and evils in the world, which that requires God's wisdom, to change systems, that requires God's wisdom, to shape a culture for the glory of God, and to show the world what it would look like if everyone submitted to Jesus as Lord. When people look at the church, they ought to get a vision of that, like a foretaste of coming attractions. 
This is the world Jesus is bringing. This will be like when Jesus returns and makes all things new. They should get a preview, a foretaste of that from us. Well, I just want to say, as I start to wrap this up, that I've already said some things about the gospel, but I want to reiterate that the gospel is really the key for worship, nurture, and witness can fall apart without the gospel. Without understanding God's redeeming grace, His authority, power, and love shown through the person and work of Jesus, without that, worship turns into war. By that I mean we come and we gather for worship and we just argue about which style is appropriate, which sort of uh, things ought to be included or not included in a worship service and get stuck on that stuff. Nurture becomes about pretense. Some of us trying to look good in front of other people, pretending that we're better than we really are. Whereas the gospel gives us a freedom to really speak into one another's lives as redeemed sinners who've been given the spirit of God. And without the gospel, witness merely becomes something we shame and guilt people into doing and not something done out of joy. But when the gospel's at the center, one can't help but want to bear witness to the gospel of the kingdom in our life. Another point I might add is that some congregations, particular expressions of church, are better at one or two of these things than maybe uh, another. So you might think of some churches who seem to be really good at their worship services and creating something that's impactful and where people really engage with God. Other people are really good at Bible study and doing discipleship stuff, but maybe they don't have a great uh, outreach. They don't bear witness out into the, in the public sphere for God. And other people may be trying to do a lot publicly but aren't really growing deep roots for their people. And so the church has to be continually aiming in all three directions, realizing that we've been, we have a threefold vocation, upward, inward, and outward. Seven Hills Fellowship has programs that aim in all three directions that people can plug into. Uh, it certainly requires that we think of ourselves as being the church all the time and not church as just something we come to on Sunday because it's kind of difficult, if not impossible, to move in all three directions in one worship service on Sunday. It has to be the directions of our life all the time. And so how should we, what's my exhortation? Um, It's simply that we would pray for grace to embody this vision of the church, that insofar as what I'm saying accords with biblical truth, we would pray for the Spirit's help both corporately and individually, to be a worshiping, nurturing, witnessing people. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we pray just that. Would you please, by the power of the Spirit, enable all of us to be worshiping individuals. And by our worship, people might be won over to you. Be a nurturing people. That when we nurture one another's faith, even just people who happen to overhear our conversations would be drawn to you for our joy. To be a witnessing people, that those disillusioned with church would be reawakened to the goodness and beauty of your bride. We confess our weakness, our inability to do these things on our own. And so we pray for the Spirit to enable us, to inspire us afresh. In these moments, in Christ's name, amen.